So just for a moment or two, can we look back to Luke uh, chapter 2, the passage we read? And just uh, by way of introduction, uh, can you uh, ask you to use your imaginations a little bit? Uh, If you can imagine these verses from verses 1 to 21, uh, like a piece of music, if you can imagine these verses as a piece of music, then it kind of breaks up quite nicely into the into the rhythm of, of the, the passage. Verses 1 to 7, where we have the birth of Jesus, could be uh, likened to a solo harpist. So it's, it's underplayed, and it's, there's, there's not a great amount of instrumentation. In verses 8 to 14, with the coming of the angel and the glory of the Lord being revealed, it's like a full orchestra is being revealed there. Uh, and then from verses 15 to verse 21, it kind of calms down a bit, like more like a string quartet again. So you're moving from from a minimal, uh, a minimal description to full-blooded uh, orchestration of uh, the divine work, and then it comes down a little bit. The, the, the orchestra in the middle is really holding this whole section together uh, in, a, in a great truth crescendo, if you could call it that. And we're just going to look at one or two things similarly to last week and apply it to our own lives because we know and we recognize as the living Word of God uh, for us. So, in that first section, verses 1 to 7, very briefly, is the declaration of uh, the birth of Jesus. I'm probably going to focus more on the orchestrated bit in the middle, uh, the coming of uh, uh, the angel to the, the uh, shepherds. But th- that first seven verses is really just a very ordinary, in many ways, a very ordinary birth narrative. Uh, it's very low-key. Um, it's understated. And Dr. Luke, again, as we saw last week, Dr. Luke, the one who wants to come uh, uh, and declare truth in his uh, kind of medically precise way uh, and give truth uh, to the people, Dr. Luke, as a doctor, describes all the kind of things you would expect that would be described in a, in a birth announcement. He gives the time of the birth, the place of the birth, he gives a historical situation and the background of the birth, speaks about the family and their background, the name of the parents. He declares that it's the firstborn child. Uh, he even gives some kind of details about the clothing that the baby was wearing, the circumstances. And in the society in which uh, Jesus was born into, it's very unremarkable, really, in, in many ways. There's nothing amazing. And all of, all of us uh, to the degree that we understand childbirth and the announcements of childbirth, uh, can relate to this. You know, you, you wouldn't read that in any way and think, oh, this is the birth of God the Son. It's just a very ordinary narrative of a baby being born, and, and we can relate to that. And that is typical of Luke. He takes these things uh, that are historical and real, and he declares them. He records them. And then, as we saw last week as well, uh, the two go side by side. This ordinary birth narrative, this solo harpist, as it were, kind of understatedly introducing the birth of Jesus, brings us to the crescendo of the middle section of the shepherds and the angels, where Luke is quite content to put the historical and the ordinary narrative of a birth side by side with the supernatural and with the breaking of heaven into uh, earth and into our uh, whole uh, circumstances. He gives, therefore, 
in this, into this ordinary narrative, he gives a spiritual context, and he explains who is being born, why he's being born, and why it's unique and significant that he's been born. Luke has, Dr. Luke has no shame in placing the two things together, the historicity of the birth and the supernatural reality of uh, heaven breaking into uh, the uh, whole scene, the glory of God being revealed, and uh, the angel speaking. So, there's a few things I want to just say quickly about this second section, this supernatural dimension, this orchestrated revelation of why Jesus is coming. Uh, and the first is it's paradoxical. It's an amazing situation because what you have is two complete extremes coming together in the announcement of the angels to the shepherds. You've got the angel of the Lord coming, and you've got the glory of the Lord being revealed around him, and you've got the angelic choir singing. So, you've got this divine intervention through the the breaking into our society and into our world of the angelic beings, the, the, represent, the angel of the Lord representing the highest rank of all created beings that are unseen. We don't see angels. Um, many people in the world in which we live will not believe in them, and they'll think they're just like fairies or like uh, Father Christmas. But uh, we recognize uh, the spiritual, unseen spiritual dimension breaking in and the brightness of God's glory shining in the situation. So, you've got this amazing situation of uh, heaven breaking in, and heaven and the angels come paradoxically to shepherds, okay? So, this remarkable announcement, this setting the scene of who Jesus is and why He comes uh, as the most significant and unique event in the history of the world, is given to shepherds. Now, even in, in, even in our world, even in our lives, okay, we're, okay we're prof you're professionals here, you're city dwellers, um, and uh, there's probably not, there may be some children of shepherds here, but there's probably not many shepherds here. But even in our context, shepherds, being a shepherd is a fairly noble profession. Uh, it's, it's regarded with some respect here in Scotland. I can say that as my brother-in-law and father-in-law were both shepherds. But generally, you would all agree that uh, a shepherd uh, was a respectful um, profession to be in. And as Christians, we've got a respect for shepherds because of the biblical imagery of shepherding and the Lord's my shepherd and all that. But in the society in which Jesus was born into, uh, shepherds were not um, a respected profession. They were similar to, in many ways, to the tax collectors and the prostitutes of Jesus' day in terms of social standing. Uh, they were second class. They were untrustworthy. Their word wouldn't be taken in court. Uh, they had no civil rights, and they were a despised, um, a bit like, watch what I'm saying, but in, in, in uh, culture and society, tra tra travelers because they would always be on the move. They, they wouldn't be fixed in any one place. They didn't put their roots down. They would be working in different parts of the country, and they were genuinely uh, despised in, in the society's terms. Only Luke mentions them in the New Testament. But there's a very powerful message that God is giving to us when He breaks in from heaven with the announcement of the birth of Jesus and gives it to shepherds. 
this great announcement, this significant announcement with the glory of God being revealed is not given to in the decree in the days of Caesar Augustus. It's not given to Caesar Augustus, who was reputed to be a god in his day. It wasn't given to parliament or to uh, the royal palace, uh, not to the powerful and important. It was given to shepherds. And there's a spiritual significance there. And I don't think we get that, you know, with all the sentiment of hymn carols and everything about shepherds at night and, and, you know, nativity scenes and all that kind of thing. We probably don't get the significance of what Jesus is saying. To try and parallel that, and it's not a very good parallel, but it, it, it would be like today the queen's coronation or the next coronation of the next king, whoever it will be, uh, being held in a brothel. That's what it would have, that, that's a kind of similar, that's the shock factor that the people would have got when the announcement of the Messiah was given to the shepherds, like the, the queen's coronation being held in a brothel. And, and there's a scandal, and there's a signal within that message that Jesus, that the Bible is bringing to us, that he is, he is turning convention in its head, and that our standards of significance and importance and morality and goodness are not his. Uh, and they don't cut it with God. Caesar Augustus saying he's God, the important Roman leaders or the Jewish religious leaders of the day, God's not impressed with that, and God takes his message to the outcasts and the marginalized. That's the message from the beginning of Jesus coming. It's the message of all the gospels, that Jesus spends his time with the uneducated with the uh, lowly, with the marginalized, with the outcasts, because he is saying something significant. He's saying, I want you to see, and I want everyone to see, that I have come to people who are in need, and people who need a Redeemer. Mark chapter 2 and verse 17, uh, if we have that for the screen, if it's on the screen, uh, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And the glory of God being revealed through the angels to the shepherds was exactly an announcement of that. It's exactly an announcement that that is who Jesus come to save. He says, I've not come to save people who think they don't need a Savior. It's not that they don't need a Savior, but they, they think they don't need a Savior. He said, I've come to those who will recognize their need, and I spend my time with those who are already socially outcast because they, they are beginning to see their need. And that is a huge, I think that's a huge lesson for us. It's a huge lesson for us not to be complacent, not to be self-righteous, not to be judgmental, and not to be careless about our spiritual condition. Yeah, it's okay. I'm fine. I'm not a bad guy, a bad person. I'll treat Jesus like that fourth emergency service now and again, but there's no sense of daily rescue and need from this great Redeemer who promises to be with us every step of the way. So, it's uh, at that level, it's paradoxical, but it's, it's also informative, uh, this, this uh, orchestrated middle section. Uh, so, the angel brings information about who this, this baby who is born. There's, there was, I don't know, sign, you know, uh, uh, 
hundreds of babies were born at the same time as Jesus all through the world. But this particular birth uh, is special, and the angel brings information about why it's special. And it's grounded in the Old Testament, which again is significant for us. It's, it's not a random birth. It's not, oh, I'm surprising you all. This could never have This is grounded in the Old Testament and in the plan and purpose of God. And we've seen that all through, haven't we? So he's going to be born, we're told, in the king's town. Uh, in verse 11, for unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And we know that uh, Mary and Joseph had moved to Bethlehem. Now, uh, in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, we have that prophesied. But you, O Bethlehem Ephathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me uh, one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This Old Testament declaration that the Savior uh, would come uh, from Bethlehem, the city of David. Uh, it's the city where David, ironically, was the shepherd king. And the people had seemed to have forgotten that about the whole concept of shepherding. It's where he was crowned. And those of you who are part of the congregation and have been for a little while may remember our study in Ruth, uh, where uh, Naomi left Bethlehem, which was the house of bread. That's what it means, Bethlehem, the house of bread, which symbolized the blessing uh, of being God's covenant people. But it was in a time of famine. But they left the place where God promised to be if they would turn back to Him, and they went to another place. And so it has whole of Old Testament significance uh, as the place where the Messiah would come from, who would at one point in his ministry declare himself to be the bread of life. Uh, and that's all fitting into the picture that is being spoken of here. And later on in Micah, it speaks of him as the shepherd of the flock. So it's born in the king's town. And, and earlier we're told that uh, Luke tells us that Jesus would be the firstborn. And again, I think that's significant. It's, a, it's significant biblically, this whole term that's given to Jesus, the, the baby being the firstborn. There's an interesting question asked. I, I don't think I put this on the screen, Micah 6, verse 7. I don't think so. Um, where Micah, the prophet, asks, shall I give my firstborn for the sin of my soul? It's that question. Who would do that? Who would ever give their most beloved child for the sin of their soul. It's unthinkable. It's kind of, it was an unthinkable statement. You couldn't possibly do that. But here, the firstborn is uh, the child, that, as it were, the incarnate child of God, the Son of God. Uh, and it's, it's, it is, speaks about His birth, but it speaks more about His designation. The firstborn in Scripture was the, the ruler often, was the preeminent one who would receive the inheritance of people. And, and that is significant in the life of Jesus. Also in Romans 8, 29, uh, that phrase is used of Jesus, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So that sense in which he, even in his resurrection on this Sunday morning, uh, first day of the week, the resurrection speaks of him being uh, the, the fruit of the salvation, the firstborn, uh, the, the creator who is both uh, dead and alive, and uh, the fruit of uh, the salvation. And in, in Colossians 1.15, similarly, it speaks of Jesus as being the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
giving him this great sense of uh, preeminence and significance. And he comes as the firstborn to bring peace in a war and in our hearts. Christ, uh, who is the one who brings peace. I'm going to say a little bit more very briefly about that at the end. But he, he, it's, it's informative and that we're told he's the firstborn and we also know he's one that's born with names and with titles. Verse 11, he's called the Savior, the Deliverer, the Rescuer. Significant. That's important for us today. He is uh, called the Christ, the Anointed One, the Chosen One, the Messiah. That, that name just links back into every book of the Old Testament. Uh, it speaks of the coming of the Savior, the Messiah, the promised one, the gift of God, right from Genesis 3 and the seed of the woman, one who's set apart, the one, the one, the only one. You know, it's not like there's Jesus and there's Buddha and there's Muhammad and there's a whole lot of different ones that you could just take your pick, pick and mix depending on your culture and the society where you're from. The claim this is an exclusive claim, a deliberately exclusive, unique claim of the Messiah being God's only one. He was the only one in the mind of the divine, the all-knowing one. He says there's no alternative. There isn't another way. It doesn't, it's not just about where we're born and what we happen to have opened in our lives in terms of religious books. He said this is the one. This is the Redeemer. This, and heaven breaks into the situation to say that and says he's Lord. Not only is he Messiah and the Savior, he's an astonishing claim that he is Lord, Christ the Lord. It's not merely human term of respect and esteem. This, is, this, this baby is, is being confessed uh, as one who is the full deity of God, that he is the Lord. It's a divine title, incomparable. Glance back to the solo harp section. Glance back to it. This ordinary birth. He is the Lord. He's declared as, as God in the flesh. You know, you need to soak that in. We need to soak that in. And you, you know, what kind of God would do this? What kind of God would do this? You accuse him of being distant, of being disinterested in your life. And here we have a picture of the God who is conceived in the womb of Mary and is born into poverty, a stricken child of ostracized, beggarly poor parents, revealed to nobody but to uh, disinterested shepherds. The greatest announcement ever uh, that God chooses to give is given in this remarkably that this is God who comes. And, and it's good for us to be reminded of that afresh. So, the last thing I want to say uh, this morning is that it's not only informative and, and paradoxical, but, um, and I'm, I'm moving out of the passage uh, for this, but it's recorded for our certainty, okay? So, this uh, birth narrative that we receive and often hear, and you maybe think you're tired of hearing it, and you know it all, and uh, maybe we should preach about the birth of Jesus in June. I think that would be better sometimes. Um, just to take away the familiarity of, of doing it in December. Um, okay, maybe not. Okay, just an idea. But 
Uh, it's recorded for our certainty. Luke chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, it seemed good to me. This is Luke uh, giving the reason for his um, writing of the book. It seemed good to me, having followed all these things closely from time past, to write an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So, Luke's account, you know, the narrative uh, of the nativity is given for us to have certainty uh, about what has been seen by the eyewitnesses and what is being declared to the people he's writing to as the gospel. Uh, it's both historical and historically sound, but also miraculous and divine in its message. Luke has no problem with that, and it's still speaking to us. So, it's speaking to us, I think, about a couple of things. The first is peace. I didn't mention, I mentioned that briefly. And uh, this week, I came into this study. I usually have a daily reading, Bible, a daily reading book that I have that I read at home. It's actually, surprise, surprise, Tim Keller. Uh, and it's going through the Psalms. It's a great book going through the Psalms. That's the one I normally read in the morning, but I didn't have it with me. I came into the church, and I've got a number of different uh, daily reading books just in my uh, shelves beside my office, uh, and I took one of them, and it was just an, an old daily reading book written by a Dutch pastor, and it happened to be that the day I was preparing the sermon, and I was looking uh, at this aspect of peace, and the message from that day was from Isaiah 52, which spoke about how beautiful are the mountains of him who brings good news, good tidings, and then this Dutch pastor explained a little bit about peace from his context. And he said, if you want to know again what the good news is, think back to the situation in the Netherlands in the year 1945. It was spring after the most fearful winter Europe had ever known. Sons were murdered, fathers were powerless, daughters were insecure, and mothers could no longer give daily food to their children. People died of starvation, and they cried to God under the heel of the Nazi oppressor. They met in churches, and in the long dark nights, there was no electricity. They prayed fervently for freedom, for help, for a way out. On the evening of May the 4th, a rumor went through the country. It was an electrifying rumor, and it went faster than a prairie fire. It's over. The war is over. Peace. Not one healthy person stayed in his chair. Crowds went out into the dark streets. Someone started to sing a song of liberty, and they were all filled with joy. This comes closest, he says, to what happened at Christmas. It was in that night that the heavens were opened and a voice said, it's over. It's all over. Now the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. And we've lost sight of that declaration of peace because we, we are living, as it were, tangibly as in many ways in, in peaceful days. But the peace of God is a spiritual peace uh, and it's a vital peace for us, living in the knowledge that death has been defeated for everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, and that we are made right with God through the sacrifice, death, and resurrection of our Savior, because He loves us, and because there's no other way. So, it's peace, and it's also, as we're told there, good news of great joy. And that, We know these words, don't we? And, and the experience of the believer, and I mentioned this last week, I guess, uh, whatever happens in our lives, whatever good things 
we experience or otherwise uh, and this for this time of year is, is a great time of joy but as i said in prayer remember it's not for a lot of people let's not just presume it's a great time of happiness and peace for everyone remember that in many families not only is there loss but there's tension as they come together this time of year many families are not happy families and the coming together brings huge tensions and difficulties remember that but this we have is good news of great joy great personal news that we have and that we share that's why i think an application of this conversions people coming to faith in jesus christ is the lifeblood of our churches it's why testimonies matter so much and why we're struggling as a church when we don't hear testimonies and when people aren't being brought to christ and when there's a just a, a level kind of everyone going on the same way it's a great and encouraging thing to see god still working in people's lives and transforming them and you can gauge your understanding of the message of the gospel by how much you're thrilled when you hear about someone coming to faith especially someone you know it should be the one thing that just breaks your heart in the best way that just breaks your heart with joy because it's the most significant and the realest greatest reality in their lives and uh, it's something that we should rejoice in and of course uh, in terms of uh, the certainty uh, of this great message being one which is good news and one of peace is that that repeated refrain from the angel of the lord says fear not don't be afraid and uh, repeat that we need to grasp that in our lives it's a great word isn't it to end the year and start the new year with a world that's really upside down uh, and could instill within us a great sense of fear about the future of the world uh, and the future of our nation and the future of our relationships and the future of society and whatever but maybe at a much more personal level you've received bad news or uh, you're struggling with difficulties in one way or another he says in christ he says fear not even in your fragility whatever it might be fear not in your church life or your home life uh, as leaders we we're fearful for how to progress so that we we do things in in god's way and god's will fear not with your lack of faith failure and doubt fear not it's really good news trust in him that's what pleases him that simple trust that we we don't need to know all the answers but we entrust ourselves to the one who does even if he chooses not to reveal these answers to us but we trust him why because he's good and because he's already shown that as god he came and lay in a stinking smelly manger and lived in anonymity and was rejected in his public life and was abandoned by his friends and was forsaken by his god so that we might live that's why we needn't fear amen let's bow our heads briefly in prayer father god we thank you uh, for your great truth and we thank you that when often we don't feel your grip of grace it remains on us as believers 
and you keep us from wandering. And when we do wander, you leave the 99 that seem to be doing okay, and you come after us. You love uh, returning uh, the wandering sheep to the fold. You look out for the prodigal child who is wild and uh, unrepentant until they see uh, their emptiness without you. And Lord, give us that humility of heart and that strength and courage to face up to the spiritual realities that sometimes we run away from. And help us to hold on to you as this great God, yet a brother who understands us and who has, has gone before us and has died in our place. We rejoice in the good news of the gospel today. It's great, good news of great joy. And may we re respond in faith and in trust for Jesus' sake. Amen.